Welcome to Cross Section, conversations at the intersection of faith, news and culture. Hello and welcome to Cross Section, where we explore the stories at the intersection of faith and culture. You may have noticed that there are some changes today. I am not Joe Evans. Joe is up a mountain. She is climbing Kilimanjaro. Uh, if you follow Joe's Twitter, you can see how you can sponsor her and maybe even find out how she's doing. And Danny Webster has been allowed to go to the beach today. So we have with us Chris, formerly our famous sound engineer uh, and our public Scottish public policy officer. Uh, and it is wonderful to have you with us today, Chris. Yep, uh, good to be here. Gone into the subs bench and see who we got. And we've got, got me. So there we go. You, you've been you've been promoted. You're getting the start today. This is fantastic. Mm. So we'll have a, a Scottish story coming soon. And we have Alicia, the one and only Alicia Edmund, a regular. Yes. And you're not a subs bench. I told you this. You are the Declan Rice for Tom and Thomas <laughs> Party. Hopefully he's coming to Arsenal all the way. Here we go. Oh, it's yes, some sort of foot, 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 well, football uh, reference. Listen, I just have to make clear right off the bat we're recording a mere 12 hours after my team West Ham won a European Cup. So so just to put that on the record. That's right. So you have a West Ham supporter with a Northern Ireland accent who is our Sc Scottish public policy officer, just for clarity, right. everybody. That's right. <laughs> yep. Okay, so you are welcome uh, to the show, everybody, both the guests and uh, you who are listening. What do we have on the show today? Well, it is the holy month of pride and Oxfam have put out a crazy tweet and their whole world of crazy tweeting is going on. So we'll be looking at that. We are going to be looking at a recycling story. Should we uh, all be doing better when it comes to recycling? Scotland are uh, arguably leading the way, but being thwarted by Westminster. So Chris is going to explain the intricacies of devolution and uh, why this has caused a recycling standoff. But first, Philip Schofield, Phil and Holly, the lovely couple on the good morning sofa, whatever that ITV program is. It's, it's split, but it's dominated the headlines for weeks. Why do we care about Philip Schofield? Do we care about Philip Schofield? Alicia, do you care about the Philip Schofield story? Wow, what an intro. And it's good morning, Britain, I think. Do I care about the Philip? Do you know what? I haven't really engaged with the story because it feels like a lot of throwing under the bus when the truth should prevail. So I felt his statement, his initial statement of why he was leaving coming out very odd and very blasé in kind of saying, yes, I did lie about a former relationship uh, and an affair that I was involved in, for which the staff would have known about at some capacity of an inappropriate relationship and how ITV's responded and just Holly Willoughby's kind of first appearance in asking the audience how you're doing as if it's mutually a painful experience. I just find the whole thing of a, a TV drama that's gone a bit wild really if i'm being honest it is it is a bit crazy i saw glenn scrivener uh who speak life i think is his uh, uh stuff that he does he was talking about it you know in, a, in an age of expressive individualism we're all for sexual freedom as a culture and so philip mm -hmm. being gay that was okay and and breaking his marriage vows that actually seemed to be okay as a culture but there is this one line left consent is the key bit mm -hmm. and so if you can't have consent because it's somebody the age difference Philip in his 50s, uh, and this young man initially a teenager, that abuse of power, that grooming moment was the one that seemed to really trip him up. And that's where the line was crossed in our culture. 
and he was just pointing out about how bizarre this was in this age of sexual freedom in every other area but there are still these lines and when there are the lines you really throw somebody under the bus because it's incredible how everybody kind of turned on philip schofield in this moment a society that's unable to forgive chris thoughts on philip schofield yeah i mean i think the angle of kind of the public forgiveness or not is quite quite interesting in in the story and I think, you know, kind of, I think there's been enough coverage of it over the past week and, and especially with the, the interview that, that he gave to the, to the BBC. I think, I think surely there is, there is able to be a balance of ITV and whoever else can put in things in place to ensure stuff, I guess, doesn't happen again, while also being concerned for the mental health and welfare of the, of the man involved and, and him and Philip Schofield as well. Like, surely there's a way to, to balance those things and, and just how, Kind of in wider society, I don't know how much influence this story has actually had over the past week. I mean, there's been a lot of coverage of it. I know that I, my understanding was it was this morning, but maybe it's not this morning. It's um, called something else. But no, I, I don't. You're right. You're a better. <laughs> you're a better person um, than I. I so so I I, mean, I don't watch it, and but I, I know that it has quite a lot of cultural influence in in the UK. I guess a lot of people do do watch it. So it's obviously very significant in, in that sense of kind of you know people wake up and that's what's kind of in on their tv sort of thing so so i think the kind of public angle of kind of what this kind of public forgiveness element is, is quite interesting with them yeah it is i mean it is fascinating like he has repented i mean he seemed i saw a clip of the interview he's he's fumbling around with a vape in his hand he seems you know really quite shaken by the whole thing i mean he seemed genuinely suicidal he talked about it. he said yeah. he, he thought about ending his life and he, he does seem incredibly traumatized because I think in part, it's almost like he can't work out where he crossed the line. Actually, lots of people come out initially kind of supportive of him, other celebrities and other people saying, well, hold on, this person ultimately, when they had the relationship, was of age. There's no problem in our society with being gay. There isn't a problem with breaking your marriage vows. It seemed to be that he'd lied to ITV was the point that they wanted to trip him up on, that he had denied the whole thing. And that's the bit where Holly Willoughby and others saying, oh, that's the bit where we get caught out. He seemed genuinely surprised at how suddenly everybody had abandoned him because he hadn't really broken any of society's taboos. There's the implication he'd done something wrong in the grooming, but actually officially the relationship only started when the person was of age. And, and that's the bit in our culture, isn't it, where you sort of you get caught by a line, you're not even sure where the line is, and there is no way back for him right now. He's the sacrificial lamb. There's no there's no ability in our culture to forgive in a, in a strong cancel culture society. I think that is the key point: is that him and and, and the man are are very repentant. I, th I think that is the, the the key thing. You know, as what do we as a society do with that? Is is interesting. I also just think it's bizarre that the marriage vows. The bit to me, this is the bit you commit for life. For that, I know it's long gone in our society, but I still find it bizarre that that bit's almost like irrelevant. The fact that he cheated and lied to his wife. That seems to be irrelevant. Yeah. The problem is he lied to ITV. Oh, well, that's a problem. Now we'll end your contract. How, how is, how, how, I don't understand sometimes how our culture operates in this moment. But that takes me seamlessly to our probably our, our main story, Pride and Woke Washing, as it apparently is called, so I'm learning on, on social media, it is the uh, uh, Pride Month, which I'm sure you've noticed if you walk down any street, and it is, I find it fascinating, actually lots of non-religious people describe this as the Holy Month of Pride. This is part of the pushback that's going on, actually particularly within the LGB culture, reacting to some of the stories going on at the minute and uh, some of those organizations pushing back and i suppose the story that got our eye uh, did involve uh, oxfam some people might not have seen this uh, alicia is pretty recent last couple of days 
what what's the story I love how you're coming to me when it's you that's causing the storm on Twitter regarding the story. Maybe that will feature in this episode an explanation. Uh, so Oxfam International had posted uh, a part of their campaign. I think it's, is it protect? I can't think of what it is. Protect the pride. Protect, it is, I thought, okay. Protect the pride is their slogan uh, for which they did a short animated video talking about the experiences, the LGBT plus community uh, in society and the need for both visibility and protection. Uh, but there was a small part within their clip where they had three angry faces, uh, two seemingly male, uh, and the one in the middle has a green dress on and is wearing the badge turf. And many have said that the animated female uh, in that video resembles the one and only JK Rowling. Uh, and so there was a massive Twitter storm uh, uh, on, the, was that Wednesday or Tuesday, uh, where it kind of uh, broke out, where there was a real pushback on whether Oxfam should be using uh, kind of an image or an illustration of JK Rowling as the figure and the face of being a turf, which is trans trans exclusionary radical, radical feminist feminist uh thank you and within the space of 24 hours that clip had been retweeted commented written about across different uh platforms and pulled uh, in terms of the video that part taken out and re-uploaded with an apology statement from oxfam so it's been a, a whirlwind uh, in terms of uh twitter but maybe you should share your account Peter, of your engagement with that tweet, because a lot has happened. Well, I did engage with the tweet for exactly the reasons you said. And even so, I mean, the Times, BBC, lots of people commenting on the resemblance to JK Rowling. But even if not, it has a demonized version of a, what looks like an older lady. So no matter what, this was a stereotyping because turf, in my view, is simply a term for those of us who believe in biological reality. I mean, this is, they're sometimes called gender critical feminists, but they essentially believe a woman is a woman, an adult, a woman, uh, sorry, a female, a woman is an adult female human being. That would be the definition. So even the, the demonizing of that group was really unhelpful. But I did tweet about it. Uh, I found myself then facing what looked like a shadow ban on Twitter. So if you search for my name, you couldn't find me after doing this tweet. And that lasted, it looks like something like 12 hours. It seems to be lifted now. We were able to do some checks behind. Lots of people verified that that did seem to be the case. Is it because I tweeted that? I do not know. But there was certainly a, a Twitter storm. And what they call the ratios on that is the number of likes was relatively low. The number of quote tweets and replies, which generally suggest people pushing back against the tweet was really high. And that's where Oxfam seemed to get themselves into lots of trouble. They did not read the, the kind of mood music correctly and people were pushing back, which I find really interesting overall. People have said, hey, listen, absolutely LGBT people should have rights. I want to say that too. I want to absolutely support that. But we have the story, in my view, going way too far at this moment. But Chris, thoughts on this story and how it's being covered? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I mean, I thought our experience in Scotland had taught us to, you know, have these conversations in a much better way. I mean, I, I don't know how this helps anyone. This type of yeah, you know, whatever this video was, whatever, like, there's surely a way to be both be compassionate and support transgender people or the struggling with their gender identity while at the same time not making out that uh, women and girls or or men who have concerns about 
the broader societal implications of sex-based rights are transphobic for expressing them. Like there surely, there surely is a balance that we can find between those two positions, which is also the position where based, I mean, broadly based on all polling where the UK is as well right now is somewhere in between those two places as well. I mean, the, the conversation around this has changed in Scotland quite a lot in the past couple of months as I'm sure the listeners will be aware of the Section 35 order that the UK government did to block the gender recognition bill that was passed in Scotland and the high profile legal cases of individuals that have uh, maybe caused a rethink about sort of how you do legislation around this area. And there seems to be a trend in polling that Scotland's almost more, the people of Scotland are almost more kind of against changes in legislation around this area. But for example, Unheard Britain is one of those pollings that uh, the polling that did that. So, so surely there's a way that we can have more helpful discussions in this. I, I just don't know how this sort of stuff, I mean, like, you know, I'm not hugely on Twitter as well, so I, I don't kind of see a lot of this stuff happening, but, but I acknowledge that a huge amount of the stuff that was on Twitter is this kind of completely, you know, opposite, polar opposites, doesn't help anyone in the situation, and, and surely there's a better way forward. Yeah, I think for me, the real concern, and I would like to ask you a bit more, but the, the, the culture war piece of this is actually coming from all sides, it feels like. So you've had the, the Budweiser debacle in the States uh, in terms of, and they've essentially been cancelled by the right on that side because they sent a can to a transgender activist and tried to kind of uh, push into the LGBT market and there are more conservative supporters that no Target in the US similarly had a whole range of products, uh, again, coming into Pride Month. And then you're saying this pushback, but it's like, you know, everybody has to own their part in the culture wars. I actually don't like the culture war idea. I don't like that this this way of framing, but I also don't like the sense that sometimes, oh, it's Christians who are promoting that. There are some Christians who do, and I think they almost enjoy it and think it's a good way to go. Mm. But some of the push means surely we've got to respond in some way, shape or form. You talk about the separation of church and state. Here you've got like an, an ideology and capitalism in tow. And the woke washing idea comes from the sense these firms are just ripping us off and making money off us. And then they try and kind of do a little bit of corporate social responsibility and make themselves look good. It's like, you know, how do we engage in this and think a little bit better about uh, the month of pride? Speak your mind, Peter. Don't hold back, you know, comprehensive as ever. How do we engage with the, the month of pride? For me, there's a hesitation and I want to expand this a little before I go on to the cause and the concerns so I think typically the word pride or pride month is synonymous with or the, the good messaging and storytelling for the last 30 odd years since it, the first pride marches it's around justice it's around a visibility and a recognition of an injustice that is taking place towards a people group based on their sexuality or gender identity but before I get to that, I think as a Christian, where I struggle with the, the conversation or, or even to engage well into this conversation is the fact that the, the whole campaign is centered around pride. That very word in it, in and of itself, there is nowhere in scripture for which the word pride is something for which the God, God admires, that God delights. In fact, it's one of the things in which he opposes. He, he detests, he hates the proud. To, to come to him requires a, a humility, a recognition that we are spiritually impoverished and that we are in need of a savior. So I guess for me, the very starting point for me is a biblical foundation, a scriptural foundation on the very word 
pride and that centering on the self in a way of elevating that above and beyond any other scripturally we are taught Galatians you know we have been crucified with Christ we no longer live our identity in whichever form that takes in a human capacity be that sex be that race be that our social economic status whatever does not have supremacy over what is our redeemed identity which is received in Christ so for me the challenge is on the subject is on the wording and the campaigning and the phrasing of pride and I think there are parts of the pride movement or part campaigners and activists that use that arrogance to be like you either agree with us or you don't and if you don't get it you are to be ostracized you are to be counseled you are to be put on the side now as a christian i do believe there are ways for us to be nuanced and engaged in it for me i remember a few years ago where did pride come from what is its origins where is the conversation come from and it's a legitimate march that took part place in the 70s in the 80s in new york based on police officers of the time going into what was known as a prominent uh, uh, gay club and the, the abuse, the assault, the harassment, all that they experienced, it was a response, a reaction to that. And it was a direct justice must be done. This is not right for which the you know police forces can come into our space, mistreat treat us, the us of them being gay, uh, based on their sexual orientation. And I agree with that. No state should be able to do that. No state authority should be able to do that. So its origins is a fight for, for justice. And I think there's parts of the church for which we should speak up for that and call the wrong in that. And in the modern version of what Pride Month, March Pride Month has become, I think there's a level of being nuanced and engaged in what are the injustices of the day without necessarily being on board with all that it in the way in which it advocates so I guess that would be my my long-winded answer of how I'd engage with Pride Month. Chris I'm going to ask you in a minute and, and I know but I want to we did put out a Twitter poll and uh, in light of Oxfam's tweets around Pride for this week's cross-section we're asking how should we respond to Pride Month 17% said join in 17% said try to ignore it 49% said reframe the conversation and 17% protest and refuse to engage. So uh, just about half on the reframe the conversation, and then 17% for all the others, uh, of just short of 150 votes. Uh, so one of our more popular polls in terms of engagement. Chris, reflections on on kind of responding and, and reframing or engaging well in what is a month of pride and is all around, around us? Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, I mean. Firstly, I want to uh, affirm strongly the freedom of speech and the freedom of assembly around all of this, and and also that you know, uh, faith and belief is one protected characteristic under the Equality Act, as are other characteristics of minority groups across the UK, and and everyone should have protection for that, and everyone should have the freedom to believe what they want and to to say what they want uh, affirmed in that regard, uh, with with the with the caveats under the Equality Act. And, and and you know, like Alicia said, you know, those, those origins of, of where it came from, like that, absolutely, yeah. We we want to stand against discrimination and want to, uh, yeah, and, and do not stand for any of that at all. But I think uh, there's an interesting piece from the uh, Stephen Daisy and the Spectator this week where he spoke about kind of uh, along similar lines, like what pride 
has become and uh, and kind of what are its values now and he was suggesting that they're more around intolerance and authoritarian tendencies about kind of what you believe as opposed to you know standing with people against uh, discrimination and i think where that comes into sharp focus as well is this you know there's this phenomenon around it where a lot of these multinational companies would kind of do a lot of things around pride in in the western world and then when you when they're in the middle east for example they they don't um so in that sense does that mean that capital is kind of the main goal there over the principle of it you know for example so so i think it's yeah lots of interesting things kind of within that it does feel like there's a lot of hypocrisy and i'm gonna push you both in a minute for just what you practically do i i, I lived in vancouver for quite a number of years and we were studying there and i i really struggled with the pride flag and actually when we were doing something in our church and people wanted to paint a rainbow i was almost like my reaction was oh no and in the kids room and i was like hold on i know what you're doing and what so how do we embrace that story and an ultimate story of the rainbow uh, is an upturned bow where actually God's directing his wrath back towards himself and, and taking it upon himself. And so the, the rainbow is this incredible sign of God's grace. And so for, I don't do this all the time, but I try to dismiss myself when I see that flag, I say, thank you for the rainbow. Now I know it's not the same rainbow and, and I know that the pride flag has the seven colors, but fundamentally it's still an attempt to represent the rainbow in a shape or form. So I want to say how fascinating in that moment that it's a symbol of God's grace that I think is being misused at times. So I want to be absolutely clear. I disagree with lots of what stood for within that, but it's also a challenge back to me. And we have the church have dropped the ball in some areas around sexuality. There's no doubt we didn't do this well. And I think we're getting clear. Look, there are people who are same-sex attracted, but actually uh, God has a will and a plan for people's lives that is different than what's being articulated in pride. So how do we do that? Well, so my own little moment is to try and pause when I see that flag and just thank God for the flag. And then I probably push towards a more provocative engagement at times, as we discussed on Twitter, that's not everybody's cup of tea. And it's not always healthy. I may be wrong in that, but I want to, like, how do we create the space? Because it feels like there's no space to have a different conversation. So practically, there's any other things you guys do just in terms of how you navigate the reality of constantly seeing a very particular message in this month? I think less so within my current workplace, but previously for the last my immediate role and for the last 10 years I worked primarily in uh, a secular workplace and of course Pride Month uh, and I think there's another day uh, in the autumn for which it's focused on was always a, a focal point that the organisation wanted to do whether that's social media or staff would change their social media to the organisational colours with the kind of the, the Pride flag in the background a recognition or or going in engaging in kind of workshops and conversations or changing of pronouns. And I think there's a real tension point for Christians who work in a secular environment. How do they engage well with their work colleagues and their employee employer in this month? And I think for me, there is a way of gracefully saying no, no, I, I don't want to change my personal Facebook page or Instagram or LinkedIn profile with the rainbow flag. Uh, no, I don't. I, I, I don't want to change my pronouns. However, I'm I'm interested to hear why this is important to you as an individual, and to kind of engage in the conversation on a one-on-one, -on -one and to it to say. And I hope it's a welcome space for me to share my my perspective on identity generally. And and I think that's there's an opportunity for conversation and dialogue that is respectful more at the individual level rather than having to move to a corporate 
rebranding all of your social media or your workspace in that so I just want to encourage listeners who are working in a secular space to kind of don't withdraw completely but to ask the conversation about whether there's an opportunity either with a work colleague or through your organization to give explanation why it it might be a slight challenge to embrace the campaign in its entirety. Yeah, I've got nothing really to, to add. A very similar perspective, and I think it does give the opportunity both to for, for us to learn from people who have been hurt by by churches or, or hurt by Christians, uh, and vice versa. High gospel uh, speaks into all of life, uh, including including this part. So, not not hugely different from what's already been said. Great. Well, look, normally in that podcast, this is when you say, and now for a word from our uh, sponsors and stuff, but we don't have sponsors, except we kind of do in the sense that we all get to work for the Evangelical Alliance. We hope that you are enjoying the show. We hope that you like what you are listening to. If you have any uh, questions, queries, if you have complaints, wait until Joe Evans is back. But if you uh, you can get us at, I really hope the email is cross-section at eauk.org. Does that sound right to everybody else? Yes, cross-section at eauk.org. We would love to hear from you. You can find uh, some of us on social media, if I'm not banned. You can engage with EAUK there. And please email us. But other, two other things, if you're enjoying the show, we would love you to pray for us, not so much for the show, because the, uh, the other two in particular actually do real work in Parliament and engage in these issues. And so please pray for the team that is reflected here in this moment. And you can become a member of the Evangelical Alliance. If you're thinking, I love the show, I want these guys to continue go to eauk.org. You can sign up for as little as uh, £3 a month, the price of a cup of coffee per month, become a member of Evangelical Alliance, support the other 20-odd thousand people who are members of this organisation and allow us to do some of what we do. And with that lovely word from our sponsors, we turn to our final story as I drop my pen. And that last story is the recycling debacle in Scotland. This is the mystery and intrigue of devolution Chris, why should I care about a Scottish story about recycling? Well, we should uh, we should care about it in general because we care about Scotland. So, so what story is and why we should also care about it from a policy perspective is it's a very complicated story about devolution, net zero, public policy, COP26, all sorts of things, which I'll, I'll summarize uh, as good as I can because it actually does affect our entire daily lives and consumption habits and all the rest of it. So basically for a number of years, the Scottish government and actually the UK government, Welsh government and potentially Northern Irish government, not too sure, have all been looking to implement circular economy principles. So as in having an economy that is less about single use products. So the so the deposit return scheme, which is what the Scottish government was trying to set up through all this was essentially when you buy a, a drinks container it has an extra, a single use drinks container. It's an extra 20p. And then whenever you bring that container back to a kind of vending machine type thing, you get the 20p back. And this has been shown in other countries to increase recycling rates and, and to motivate people towards a more sustain, sustainable circular economy model. So initially there was a lot of criticism from industry for the, the green minister in the Scottish government in charge of the, of this part of the Scottish government, uh, because of the way it was going, it was the communication with industry and the kind of implementation of it. But now it has become this massive constitutional right because now the Scottish government basically can't implement it how they wanted to because the UK government says you have to exclude glass from the scheme. And Scotland said, well, that's a fundamental part of, of our preparations and in doing the scheme. So we're not going to do that. And this is part of the 
fulfilling the exemptions to the Internal Market Act so that the whole of the UK post-Brexit has the same trading rules and all this kind of stuff. And Wales is very annoyed about this as well because they had the plan, their plans to do it too. So it's now been delayed until at the very least October 2025, which I think is when the UK as a whole is going to have a deposit return scheme. So, so, but it is an area of devolved competence. So this is the issue. So is it really devolved in, uh, like in, in, in principle? So, so we're at the end of the day, we're, we're very supportive of this idea of deposit return scheme. We're very, we've always been very supportive of all the, uh, around COP26 and all the, um, initiatives that were implemented around then, but obviously within this context, there's, you know, there's issues around devolution and and who has responsibility for what. And I think then just to finish on this, another recent example of this is kind of obviously because it's linked to the Section 35 and blocking the gender recognition bill, because that was said to affect the whole of the UK, according to the UK government. And John Mason, an SNP MSP in the chamber said, I completely disagree with the gender recognition bill, but I um, completely disagree with the UK government blocking this because it's an area of devolved competence. So I think there's lots of questions around this and how we all work as a UK in terms of achieving net zero. Yeah, you've written, we'll post an article because you've written about this before in terms of the recycling and the creation care element to it and the importance of doing that well. And then you've got the details of the devolution here. Let's see, how are you on the on the recycling front? I do as well as I can. I separate. I'm intentional uh, in, in that sense and regard. I've now moved to Vinted in terms of purchasing of clothes. I mean, it's not to do with the recycling scheme, but more about the environment more generally. So yeah, I'm, I'm somewhat intentional. I give it a good crack. Chris, how, I mean, you, you are doing the policy on it, but what about your uh, recycling habits? Well, I can, always, I can definitely always be better with single-use products, especially when it comes to food and drink. But yeah, I mean, it's something I, I do care passionately about. And I think that I'm convicted that we should do because it's a very, you know, when we live in the West, when our consumption habits are so, I mean, that's a big driver of, of climate change uh, ultimately. So, so yeah, what about yourself, Peter? Yeah, it's funny. Kids definitely drive us towards it more. I mean, I think it's in their psyche more. Uh, so we're doing the separation. And I think uh, I think doing the separation feels like the easy bit. Trying to be more intentional in the buying practices on the way in is uh, harder. And I think these days you get so many things delivered to your door. So easily. you think, how can that be environmentally friendly? And how can there are, are there's more substantive changes that feels like in underneath the required. But I also think the reality is the government do have levers on certain things. So something like the deposit recycling scheme, sometimes people get fixated on the details. Will the scheme do enough in and of itself? But often it's a larger framing kind of piece, a bit like electric cars and things. I think each time you could argue about the benefit of that particular policy on its own, but it's also trying to shape a larger conversation about how we do this. While being careful, I read a lot of stuff about whether we're kind of pushing farmers almost out of business by some of the the sort of net zero tariffs that we put in place. So it's that stepping back, what do we eat? What do our lifestyles look like? Are they all conducive to a good environment and good relationships? And I think Israel, one of our colleagues done quite a lot of work in terms of even the creation care and the impact. We often don't feel the impact here. I mean, I'm sitting in a coastal area, but the reality is that for many people, they're living in much more vulnerable areas in terms of the impact of climate change. And it's often our brothers and sisters in the third world who will have the first impact of this. Uh, so I think there's multiple arguments that make this interesting. We had an episode only a few weeks back, I think, when we had Laura Young on, again, from Scotland, who's been in our public leadership programmes, talked about, about vapes. I think her argument around vaping is really good in terms of its persuasiveness, because I think vaping is a really bad idea, but she comes from the environmental frame and the lack of reusability on vapes and, and how they're filling up the landfill and has got government's attention on that. So she's running a great campaign around that. 
Guys, thanks so much for joining us today and listening. Thank you to Chris and to Alicia. Uh, it's been a really, I think, a really interesting discussion. Right at the core of that was our, our conversation, I suppose, around pride. And Alyssa, you mentioned this point. That's not a word that we see in the Bible positively. Uh, and actually, we are called to a life of humility. And, and probably the best known passage on that does come from uh, Philippians 2. And we're just, we are encouraged as, as Christians and as followers of Jesus and, you know, to have the same mind as Christ, who though in very nature and form was God, did not equip consider equality with God something to be exploited or to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and humbled himself to obedience, even death on a cross. And is that that humility that Jesus showed us in that moment, and then how we navigate the public square. And it's my own personal challenge around the cultural wars is I, I can see how people get themselves to that. But Jesus is modeling a different way to subvert the use of power in that moment and filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, how do we navigate these public square moments? So I thank you for your own insights and thoughts around that. It's challenging. I think we'll each experience that as we navigate, particularly the next month, but it's not the only moment. It's one that's in our faces and gets us thinking, what does it feel like to try and navigate that better, but to do so with humility. And uh, with that, we will be back next week for more cross-section. Be blessed. Bye-bye. Hi, it's Peter here. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Cross Section. If you liked it, can I encourage you to click subscribe, review the podcast, share the episode on social media or tell your friends so that they can enjoy it too. And don't forget, you can email us at cross.section at eauk.org. See you next time.